Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live from Multispeed Technologies, the Ask Noah show starts right now. This is the show where we came to do all the things on Linux they said could be done and take your questions on how to do the same. The phone lines are open this hour to be a part of the program. It is a free call. 1-855-450-NOAH. That's 1-855-450-6624 or send an email to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah Chalai. I'm your host. Delighted to be here with you as another episode of the Ask Noah Show kicks off this hour. Our first email comes in from Chris. Chris writes in and says, Hey Noah, in the links or in the show notes for the link to the Lenovo Thunderbolt doc, the affiliate link has a typo in the link. And he said there's, there's, there's an extraneous character in the uh, in the link and so he points that out so we bring that up for a couple of reasons first of all uh, obviously we get the the link corrected but the other thing is i wanted to make a point here we post that stuff as affiliate links because obviously we appreciate the fact that people uh try and support the show and and generate the the peanuts that it that it does do when you use the affiliate links but i, I want to point out that really the overall purpose of publishing those uh devices and those things is so that you have the opportunity you know what you're looking for and if you're looking for a thunderbolt dock to include one that works on mac then you know what you're looking for so feel free to take the model google it and um and use it, but I always appreciate it when somebody is able to point out uh, when something doesn't work. Uh, also, I'll point out too: if you're looking for one that does work with Mac OS, uh, the Th- Lenovo Thunderbolt dock we've tried that in production, and it absolutely does that. Uh, we have plenty of clients that are using it with MacBook. Now, the go-to standard for Apple machines, if you're looking for a Thunderbolt dock, is the OWC dock. So we can throw a link for you. For that in the show notes, but the Lenovo one works flawlessly. In fact, the Lenovo one, out of all the ones I've tested, Dell, Lenovo, OWC, the generic ones, they all work flawlessly uh, with with Linux. So, uh, thanks for pointing that out. I want to welcome Steve Ovens into the program. Steve, thanks for uh, thanks for joining me. Hey Noah, thanks for having me. So, more or less, Steve is joining me in person today. <laughs> more or less, we're sitting right next to each other. Right, and so you know, it's interesting. Uh, more about this as the show rolls on. Steve has essentially—he's uh, my southern neighbor now, and so <laughs> we had an opportunity to uh, to get to to get together and do a show. Um, our second email comes in from—is it Ham- Hasham? Hasham writes in and says, "Hello, Noah. I have a single problem that is probably solved, but I would like to get your thoughts and raise the issue for the community to combat it." One day, my brother noticed that our ISP-provided router updated remotely without asking and included an IPv6 section in the main view. There wasn't actual much control, just a prefix. Doing a simple test, we could SSH into my laptop from a different country. The default was providing a routable IP without any configuration or firewall. I remember a DLN show where you mentioned that there is no need for a personal device to set up and configure a firewall as long as the device is behind a NAT. Now, I had to set up UFW. What is the best practice here? Uh, 
We are also thinking about setting up PFSense or OpenSense. How do they compare? Thanks for the great value add to the community. Best regards, Hashem. So, Steve, it's interesting that you're here to join me for a couple of reasons. So the first uh, first thing I want to address, just point blank, um, what I said about not – what I said about not, as long as you're behind a firewall, what I – what I was referring to is if you're behind NAT, right? So if you're requiring a a router to to share an IP address, a one public IP address with a bunch of devices behind that router, in that scenario, you, there's you don't necessarily need a firewall because you're not going to necessarily be able to pass traffic. Now that's not done with security in mind. It's really done more of the fact that. That's just the limitation of NAT. If you're not actually translating to multiple IP addresses on the other side, then it's just not going to work. Now, that all falls apart when you go to IPv6 because in IPv6, obviously, NAT isn't really a thing. But the reason I say it's interesting, Steve is here, is Steve, you had made mention to to this a concept um, when we were talking about our network segment in IPv6. In fact, then we got some corrections of people saying, well, actually, there is some privacy and security that was added later on. But isn't this the exact kind of situation that makes both of us kind of go, hmm, IPv6, yeah, I'll just hold off for right now. Yeah, I mean, in this case, it happened kind of transparently to the user, and that's really dangerous because you don't know, especially if you think about people who are less technical, you don't know that you've just been exposed to the internet uh, and your your devices are wide open and that can be really problematic if you're a non-technical user and even if you are a technical user and you just are not looking for not aware that this has been turned on you know it exposes you to a level of risk that that ultimately a user is not aware of and that to me is just unacceptable absolutely and so if you're on ipv6 and you're and you're uh and you're concerned about security, we, both of us would probably advise you to make sure you understand what the limitations are of IPv6 and what, where, the security, where best security practices apply, and then do those things if you want to use IPv6. The truth is, at this point, I, I, still, I would still argue that we're at a point in the world where the vast majority of the world is still operating under IPv4, and that's where a lot of the tried-and-true tested knowledge is, and so f- at least... For me and my house, we're sticking with uh, IPv4 for the for the time being, and I'll make that change after all of these uh, all of these sorts of things have been sorted out. Uh, a David writes in and says, "I'm using Fedora 34, and I successfully installed the Telegram Snap, but when I click Join Telegram, it's taking me to some weird page, and I want to know how I can join the Ask Noah Telegram group." So there's a couple different ways you can do that. The easiest way to participate in that discussion is by going to GeekLab.Ninja. And that will drop you into the room immediately. And the great thing about doing it that way is you don't have to sign up for an account. And so you can start to get – you can ask questions and so you can get information even without necessarily getting an account. Now, if you want to join the Telegram group, we'll put a link for you in the show notes. We have bridged the Telegram group to a matrix chat. And if you're wondering what matrix is or why I continually bring it up, we're going to talk about that a little bit later in the show. Uh, but both of those rooms are bridged together. And so if you join via geeklab.ninja or if you join the Telegram group, either one of those will work. I'd also suggest if there's anybody else that ever says, hey, I'm having trouble with the link, you can always ask around in the community. Plenty of people would be willing to invite you into that group. But we'll have a link, an updated link for you in the show notes. You can check that out at podcast.asknoahshow.com. Our fourth email comes in for uh, from Chris. Chris. Chris writes in and says, hey, Noah and Steve, I, ha, did he know? Apparently can Chris he see the future? 
Hey, no, and Steve, I believe it was episode 240 where someone called in and asking about shrinking their Windows partition on a drive. He is correct that they should use the Windows partition manager to shrink it, but he will need to do a few extra things before that. First, I would remove all unnecessary files. Use Windows Cleanup or one of the many cleanup programs out there. Windows will sometimes put the swap file near the end of the drive, which makes it almost impossible to move it while it's in use, thereby limiting the amount that you can shrink the drive to the partition. He needs to disable that. In Windows, click on Start, then Settings, the little gear, then click System, then click About. On the right-hand side of the page, click Advanced System Settings, then System Properties, then the page will open up and click on the Settings button near the Performance. On the Performance option, click on the Advanced tab, then click under Virtual Memory, then click the Change button. Uncheck Automatically Manage Paging File Size for All Drives and select no paging file. Then click OK, accept, and you need to reboot the computer. I've used a program called JKDFrag for many years. You can download it here at Kessels.com slash JKDFrag. Install it, get the standalone version, but afterwards from administrative command, run JKDFrag TAC A5 to force all of the files together. After that is done, you should be able to use the Windows Driver Manager to shrink excuse me, Windows Drive Manager, to shrink the partition. Remember to leave yourself enough room so that you can turn the swap file back on. Feel free to share my element info if anyone needs to reach out, and I'll help as much as I can. I'm Naylor on Linux Delta. Thanks, Chris DeLuca. And so Chris is very active inside of the Geek Lab. So again, joining that group via Telegram or Element, you'll be able to reach out to Chris and, and get some one-on-one help. And huge thanks to Chris for uh, for responding to that user. Will writes in in our fifth email and says, Hi, Noah. I was happy to hear that my email provider Postio was mentioned in one of your recent reviews on alternative email providers. One aspect of Postio that I did not appreciate when signing up is that you don't have to allow to use or, or that you do not allow you to use your own domain name. The reason that they do not store any identifying metadata about their users and so they don't want to store the domain names which can be tied back to real identities. Switching my email address away from my email was a pain, so I don't plan on switching again. But if I were to switch again, it would be to provider who supported you using your own domain. That way, I would have the freedom to switch providers in the future without changing my email address. This consideration probably applies to other email hosting providers as well, Will. And I appreciate the insight. Truthfully, I wouldn't switch my personal email unless I could control the domain. I definitely wouldn't do that for my work email I'd probably not be likely to do that for my personal email, and I definitely wouldn't do that uh, for my for my uh, for my main. I'm going to live here uh, because again, it's not so much I worry about switching email and, and updating all of the people. That's not such a much a big of a deal. Where I really get uh, concerned is there. Oftentimes, I'll sign up for an account and forget a password or something like that, need to perform a password reset or I need to perform a verification, that becomes almost impossible to do if you don't have access to the domain. And that has saved my bacon numerous times. Our pick of the week this week is Ottercast. Ottercast is an open source audio streaming device that runs, you guessed it, Linux. It's based on the Sochip S3 and it features a web interface, a SharePoint sync, 
Snapcast, Spotify, and Pulse Audio Sync and Source. So it's a tiny little device, and what's interesting to me about it is you can actually flash the uh, the software on there. It includes an audio line out, an audio headphone out, an audio in. It features Wi-Fi, Ethernet, a USB sound card mode, so you can connect it to your computer, a web interface for the configuration, SharePoint Sync, Pulse Audio Sync and Source, Snapcast, both a server and client, and Spotify Connect using LibraSpot. And so I would invite you, have to, you'll have to actually see this thing to really understand uh, uh, what it is and kind of how it works, but it's a little audio streamer that's running open source software. And one of the things, the reason I, 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 I try to feature a lot of these devices and a lot of these little projects is not because I necessarily think that this is going to take over the Apple TVs of the world or anything like that, but what we're seeing in the open source community is the more this stuff comes up or the more uh, these services come up, people are responding and the community responds and says, hey, you know what? All of the projects exist to do that, we can we can actually make this happen. And and a few years ago, that wouldn't have been possible. A few years ago, you would have to buy commercial devices to get all of these things to work. And today, that's not necessarily the case. Today, we're at a point where the people that came up with the Ottercast may have not have been able to do you know the Pulse Audio part and the Snapcast part and the Spotify uh, LibreSpot uh, part. But because those individual projects are open source, the code is available, anybody can use it. Some guy that comes along or a group of people that comes along and says, hey, I'd like to make this device that just works. Well, guess what? They don't have to do the vast majority of the work. They're simply combining a lot of projects and then adding a little bit of flair on top and we get a whole new product. And then, of course, that feeds back into those ecosystems, right? Because now there's more attention on the things like LibreSpot and Snapcast and Pulse Audio and those kinds of things. So, uh, We'll have a link for you in the show notes. Again, really, until you see a picture, it doesn't really do it justice, but this is just a cool little device. You can find more at podcast.asknoahshow.com. For our gadget of the week, Steve and I were kind of discussing this before the show. I We didn't get a chance to talk about the uh, uh, about Steam's new portable device, and I mentioned it briefly last week, but I didn't really get a chance to dig into it uh, full force. And what was interesting is, so a little bit of background. So Steve is, like I said, moving to be my southern neighbor. And so my family drove down here today to, to go see him and say hi and, and welcome him and his wife and his family. And kids immediately got together and started talking about technology and different things. And one of the topics that came up was the portable Steam device. And uh, so, Steve, I kind of wanted to get your thoughts. What do you think about a portable Linux computer running Arch, running KDE, and booting into SteamOS by default? So I looked at this and I talked with my wife already and – it's probably something we're going to pre-order, to be honest with you, uh, partly because we already have a large Steam library and we don't have a Switch. Right? Okay. And we were considering buying a Switch for the family because, you know, it's it's nice. It's a nice form factor with the dock that can then break out and have a nice party time. Like if we had one here, the kids would probably be playing it right now. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I have a lot of interest in this. We already are 100% Linux in my home anyways. So we've been playing with Proton since as soon as it came out on on Steam. So we've been running the betas and all the rest of that. So my experience with Proton has already been really good. And I also have adopted the Steam controller. And it actually became one of my favorite controllers and is now my preferred controller. So now when I see this handhold device by Valve, I like the Steam controller. I assume that they're taking the bits from the Steam controller out of it. I like the form factor. And I like the fact that 
if we wanted to, we could put it in a dock and have regular Linux. You know, you can install Telegram or whatever else you want on it. Uh, but it's in a form factor that's really easy for you to pick up and move around. Do you uh, do you f- you 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 mentioned earlier that a lot of the games that you buy now you look at them ahead of time. But one of the exciting things is that Proton is going to enable uh, Valve to target all of the games being playable on this device. That's huge. Yeah, it gives them a target to actually nail down. They know they know the specs, they know how something should run, and that makes your life as a developer a lot easier when you have a target and you you can kind of move from the it works on my machine to this is the device that we're targeting for everything. And I think that's particularly key for the success here. And I think on this I wanted to kind of address we got an email from a listener, Greg, and he talked about how he was a big fan of Valve and Proton, but he thinks that there are let's say, rose-colored glasses when it comes to looking at this. So he he has some thoughts about how there are drawbacks, such as he thinks that Valve has a a history of releasing hardware and abandoning it. Mm. Um, I I was thinking about this before the show, and I don't really agree with this. So I know we have the Steam Machine. The Steam Machine flopped. It wasn't so much that they abandoned the Steam Machine as much as, you know, it was kind of a, a failed product. And I don't consider that the same thing as abandoning a product. You know, they, at this time, they didn't have uh, Proton. They didn't have the, the compatibility in the game library. And so that really failed to launch the product as opposed to something that was abandoned. Now, you could look at something like the Steam Controller and say, well, they abandoned the Steam Controller. But a lot of people don't know that there are a lot of lawsuits behind the Steam Controller. And it's my opinion that Valve pulled this more because of the lawsuits that are pending in the background for some of the design decisions they made rather than uh, abandoning the product, right? Because the more that they go out and sell this, even with an active lawsuit, then the, the more damages that could be suffered in the, in the event of a, a failed lawsuit. You know, the other side, it occurs to me, right? If Valve launched a hardware-based Steam device... And for whatever reason, it doesn't do as well as they want it to, or there are mitigating circumstances that prevent them from it being all that they want it to be. So now they launch another hardware Steam device. Is that really abandoning a product, or is it circling back to a 2.0 and saying, okay, people didn't want to pay for essentially a gaming computer in their living room. Maybe people would pay for a gaming computer in their pocket. And if you look at the, if you look at what the, the coverage and the response of people when they released the Steam Box, a lot of people were like, okay, so it's a gaming computer that runs Linux, and I can run a fraction of my games, and then it's in my living room. This thing comes out, and they say, Proton, we're targeting so that they can play all these games, and they're going to work regardless of what platform they're written for. By the way, it fits in your pocket. By the way, there's a convergence aspect from the dock. People are over the moon. Everybody's like, even people like myself who aren't typically gamers, and I, w- I was not the guy that was going to buy a Steam Box, I would absolutely buy and have pre-ordered a box that I can put into my pocket and play Steam games on. Yeah, I think it's kind of interesting because uh, a lot of the coverage has has been positive. Like Greg says, there are some things that get left behind. So um, I've listened to other podcasts where they're interviewing developers who have ported Linux games in the past and how they these developers feel that 
it's maybe time to move on because Valve is encouraging people to target Proton instead of Linux directly. Mm. And while I can understand that being a negative, I think where this what this shows is that Valve is actually really pushing to be committed to this launch being successful. Yeah. If they're actually, you know, kind of backdoor having these conversations with the developers saying, hey, write to Proton. You know, they're really trying hard to learn the lessons that, that they didn't really, weren't really aware of with the Steam Machine, you know, and they're trying to make this successful. So, um, Greg's second point was about how a laptop with similar hardware specs could be cheaper. That's true, but I could also argue that a desktop of similar specs would be cheaper. The smaller you go, the cheaper things... uh, If you want to keep that price point, you have to cut corners, right? Every time that you are condensing things. That's why an iPhone is $1,500 for the spec that it is, because it costs you a lot of money to miniaturize like that. So I also don't think that many people are as likely to pick up a laptop and go sit on the couch as they are... Uh, something that's handheld like this. I was going to make my point. You know, this is something that can be taken in the car, and it comes as a device, right? If there was a foldable laptop-style gaming machine, maybe then I could see some value and I could kind of make that comparison. But at the end of the day, you're buying a laptop and using it for gaming. You're not buying a dedicated gaming device. Yeah. Yep. And I think that, um, at least for me, again, part of, part of it is because I got really comfortable with the the Steam controller. Mm -hmm. So Noah said that we moved down here. One of the things that I didn't actually put on the truck with the movers was my Steam controller. I brought it in my backpack because I actually like it that much. Sure. Um, So I'm I'm really looking forward to seeing what the next iteration of the Steam controller is that they built into this device. Absolutely. So a couple of final points. He says the Nintendo Switch is a little bit lighter and probably easier to hold. Also, the battery life is going to be a little bit better on the Nintendo Switch versus the Steam Deck. And I guess to both of those, what I would say is it's a totally different class of device, right? I mean, again, the kind of games you're not playing Counter-Strike Go on your Nintendo Switch, but you could be playing that on on the Steam Deck. So I I just think that it's a little bit different. But again, you know, he rounds out by saying, hey, I'm still a fan of Valve. Their remote play capability is nice and it, it's just not good enough for FPS gaming and thanks for the work that you put into your podcast. I will say this. I, you know, you and I are both fans of the NVIDIA Shield and they have a Steam Link app for the NVIDIA Shield. And again, that's one of those things where, okay, so I have the Steam Deck or I just have Steam installed on one of my machines. Now the existing hardware that I already have inside of my living room that I've already gotten the spouse approval factor to put that on the wall, I don't have to ask for anything additional to pair my potentially Steam controller with this you know, NVIDIA Shield and then stream my games to it. All of that works inside of that Steam ecosystem, and oh, by the way, that Steam ecosystem and that company has a, a pretty heavy-handed investment in the Linux ecosystem. So, friend, not foe. Yeah, I'm, I guess I'm one of those people that, that have been cheering Valve on because while I understand that it's not FOSS, and most of the stuff that, that surrounds Valve is not FOSS. For me, games are not one of those things that I consider essential. I think that there are some things that it's okay to have some level of artistic control over, mm. right? This is the way the game should be played. We don't want people to tinker with it. And to me, because games are non-essential, I think that's okay. I think that that's the choice that we've made in our house that, you know, what is the what is everybody's line and mm-hmm. and we think that 
that's okay. And because of that, we've been big fans of Valve and what, what that has allowed us to do as a family, play games together, things we couldn't really do um, you know, going back even ten years ago. You know, Steve, the way I've always looked at that is when I buy when I buy a, a, a tool, I buy the tool itself and I put a lot of emphasis and research into the tool. I bought a circular saw, I really care about I'm a big dual guy, I really care about what the circular saw is, right? When I go to buy blades, I do research, right? Currently I'm on a Diablo kick, really like my Diablo blade, but at the end of the day, the blade is the consumable. I'm gonna burn it up. I know I'm gonna burn it up. It's just there for a little while. So I'm gonna put it on the saw, and I paid a lot of attention to the saw when I purchased it, and then I buy the best blade I can at the time, and when the blade burns up, if I'm happy with the Diablo blade, which currently I am, I'll replace it. But if it burns up and tomorrow the Diablo blade wasn't available, or the company goes a direction I didn't like, I won't buy a Diablo blade. I'll buy something else, right? And I'll put that on my saw. Where I'm going with this is on my laptop or on my computer, I care a lot about the operating system, care a lot about the file system because that's the heart of the machine. It's where all my data is. It's my day-to-day function. Games, well, they're the entertainment. They're the consumable, right? Videos, streaming services, all that stuff. Unless it's something that, hey, I really enjoyed that movie. I would like to own a copy, in which case I'm making an intentional decision to purchase something. It's no longer consumable. It's something I own. Well, then I've gone out and bought the Blu-ray or the DVD and I've ripped it. But... There's a documentary that came out, and it's available on XYZ streaming platform. Heck yeah, I'm going to stream it off of there. This game is available on Steam. Absolutely, I'm going to play it. And you know what? If tomorrow Minecraft isn't available, I'll switch to Mindtest, because it's just the blade that goes on the saw. In the news this week, Ear One, the wireless earbuds from OnePlus One. Um, so the nothing, the consumer tech startup led by OnePlus co-founder Carl Pai has officially announced its Ear One True Wireless Earbuds. Now, the Ear One earbuds are going to go on sale August 17th across 45 different countries, including the U.S. and U.K. They're going to sell for $99. Now, they're equipped with 11.6 millimeter drivers, and Nothing's hardware and software have both been tuned by the Swedish Electronics House Teenage Engineering. Uh, the battery life is expected to be up to 33 hours when the earbuds are used in conjunction with their charging case and 5.7 hours from the earbuds themselves with the uh, with the ANC off, dropping to 24 hours with 4 hours with ANC on, respectively. So they're going to be charged wirelessly using, uh, is it Qi charging? And over-wired charging using Type-C. Woo. The Ear Ones will use a trio of microphones on each uh, on each earbud for their noise cancellation. And so they have tap and gesture controls and can be customized via co- a companion app that also handles the EQ and find my earbud functionality. So I think this is kind of cool, right? There's, you know, all of the companies, Samsung, Apple, so on and so forth, have come out with their iteration of earbuds. So it's kind of nice to see the community aspect of that. And hey, what does, what does the, what does a noise canceling earbud look like from a company that's going to make it at a same price point for the quote unquote normal people? And um, obviously not going to require uh, any particular hardware to be able to use these, and uh, presumably you don't need to have the software app in order to make, unless you want to make some of the changes to the EQ and so on and so forth. And so kind of a cool little device and wanted to throw a little bit of attention their way. Matrix has gotten more funding, another $30 million. Now, this is big news. Uh, as you might remember, in 2020, they had, uh, I think it was another $4 million, and before that, another $20 million. 
this keeps coming back. And I think what's happening is the world is waking up to decentralized communication. And what's interesting is you're simultaneously seeing a couple of things. So first of all, you're seeing the U.S. Congress release the Access Act, which is House Bill 3849. And if you read the House bill, which I'll have linked at podcast.asknoahshow.com, it's specifically addressing portability and interoperability. And so the U.S. government is starting to get hip to the idea that oh my gosh, there's all of these people out there and they buy into a service or they use a service or they use a product and then they get locked out of that product or service and now we have to go back and regulate which product or service or which platform is allowed to do this and how much. It's too much for the government to manage. And so there are people in Congress that are saying, you know what, we need to start moving towards an open source ecosystem. At the same time, the German national healthcare system published its plan to scale 150,000 healthcare organizations on Matrix. 150,000 healthcare organizations on Matrix. And what they're skating towards here is, is simple, right? They know that if you're dealing with patient information, first of all, it needs to be unencrypted. They just can't hand that information over to a U.S.-based company like Slack or, or Microsoft. And so they're kind of in a pinch. And so when you start looking around at the ecosystem, well, what could you do? There are other open source chat platforms out there. Very few of them check as many of the boxes as Matrix does. And then on top of that, when you need all of these healthcare organizations to be able to talk together or have that interoperability, then Matrix stamps out even more of them. And so this round of uh, funding is led by Protocol Labs, the creators of Lib2P, IPFS, Filecoin, uh, alongside uh, MetaPlanet, which the investment fund is set up by, I think it's Juan Hellman, the co-founder of Skype. So think about that for a minute. And, 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 and the article published by Element goes on to point out that a lot of people forget Skype was originally a massively successful decentralized communication app. Then Microsoft bought them out and away went the peer-to-peer stuff and, and, and in came all the service-based stuff. And so to be able to go back and find one of the people that worked on this stuff, and he worked on the chat side of it, and say, hey, what was your experience like when you did that and made this very successful product that Microsoft has essentially now taken and run with? Can we do that, but this time keep it inside of the community? And again, managed from an organization that does a spectacular job. I and it, So the article says... Speaking candidly, this is a quote, speaking candidly as a company, Element could be self-sufficient at this point if we wanted it to be. Funding basic matrix and element development from revenue from EMS hosting, EMS services, and support contracts from nation-scale deployments such as France and Germany, the public network now has over 35 million addressable users, spread over 70,000 deployments, and we're working with over 10 other countries to bring them on board too. So matrix is here to stay. What I would say to that is this. I spent... um a considerable amount of time on, on, a, on a call this week with one of the EMS representatives. I didn't open a support ticket to get on that call. They reached out to me and said, hey, we know that you use Matrix in this way, this way, and this way. We would like to get some feedback on what works, what doesn't, and what you would like to see the direction of, of the project. And I could tell by having this discussion that this is something they do on a fairly frequent basis. They had a a list of questions, and she was very honest. Like, there was open-ended questions where she wanted to hear direct feedback, just open-ended. How is this working? How is that working? And then they had some very specific questions that they were using for metrics, and she was honest about that. Hey, I'm going to ask this. I'm going to ask these series of questions, and I want it. We were trying to gather metrics so that we can do X, Y, and Z. 
we have agreements with a handful of providers for doing things like email and obviously EMS for chat and so on and so forth. EMS would be the only one in 15 years that has ever reached out and said, hey, we would like a one-on-one with you because we want to better understand our customers so we can better tailor our product for you. That's, I mean, literally, it's unheard of, right? And what Matrix is aiming to do is make Element and Synapse as easy to host as a web server. The problem that they're up against is there isn't enough time and there isn't enough money. When you compare Element, and, and, and Matthew would say this himself, right? If you listen to the past interview that, that I did with him, he says point blank. He's like, I'm glad you're very happy with it. From my perspective, it's very much a work in progress, right? So they're honest about the fact that with their competition of Microsoft Teams and Slack, there are features that exist in some of those proprietary platforms that they've not yet implemented. And the problem that they're up against is the people that want this stuff want it now. Governments are looking for it now. Businesses like myself are looking for it now. Individuals who want decentralized end-to-end encrypted communications want it now. And there are, to be honest with you, paper cuts inside of Element. And anybody who uses it for 10 minutes can find that out. Their work, their, their, I would tell you that you can work around them. I would also tell you that the paper cuts I experience in Slack or Teams or Discord or whatever else are, are more egregious to me personally than the stuff I run into in Element. Aside from the fact that, hey, we can use third party clients, which we'll talk about in our next article here, why that's not always the case. So I, I'm much more inclined to want to solve the problems that are run across in Element. But the reason that they're seeking to get this, this this next $30 million worth of funding is they are going to add the polish. And so what they're looking to do is finish out building the peer-to-peer matrix instance. So again, to kind of recap, that means finishing Dendrite, which is the more performant matrix server. And that's going to allow them to do a true peer-to-peer network. So you download one client in your Android or iOS Uh, app store and that houses your server and the client it all runs on one additionally they want to implement native decentralized end-to-end encrypted uh, voice communication and video conferencing right now it's handled by jitsi and again this is another this is another perfect example of where two open source projects come together and say hey we have a common good let's work together and accomplish this thing matrix wants to deal with the chat at least to, to begin with they wanted that video component they need that video component in order to be competitive in the market Jitsi is almost there, and so they just embed the Jitsi widget. Now, is it a perfect experience? No, but we use it every week on Ask Noah. And so we have a whole matrix room that has, we call it the matrix room, but really they're connected through Jitsi. They want to complete that process and get native VoIP and uh, and video conferencing inside of Matrix, which is going to take it to an entirely different level. And then they want to fully build out their relative decentralized reputation system to combat abuse. And so the idea here is when a user posts or says something offensively, that user can be flagged and other people can then respect the that reputation that somebody else has assigned to that user. So it makes it much easier to say, I don't have to ever see that user or be aware that that user said something or even know who they are. I just have to know that I trust Mozilla and if it's unacceptable by their standards and it's unacceptable by my standards. Now, we actually had somebody ask in the chat afterwards, where can I find that functionality in Matrix? It's not here yet. This is this is some of the stuff that's coming down the pipe. But I point all of that out to say that 
this is I feel like I jumped on the Matrix bandwagon at possibly the last uh, last possible second before they either climb somewhere or hang themselves. Right. Like this is the point, I think, where Matrix is either going to entirely take off. And it's going to be used at least commercially by so many of these governments and organizations that it's again, it's there to stay or uh, there will be some sort of corporate thing that comes in and that will be the thing that people standardize on. But if you look at what's happening, every, you know, there's teams only wins on Microsoft because it's there by default. Slack only wins because there's another organization that's using it or a parent organization that's using it or there's somebody pushing it. If you're looking at what people are making an intentional decision to switch to, at least large scale, that seems to be Matrix. Now, one of the things I appreciate about Matrix is I've been playing with Solidity, whatever, the Turtle one that's in the App Store. And it's essentially a more simplified version of Element. And I appreciate that because it works really well for my family members where they just get a login or sign up button. Earlier this week, a open source Instagram client called Barnit Barinsta uh, received a cease and desist letter for from Facebook for what they're saying is violating Facebook's terms of service. And uh, Steve, I want to get your opinion on this because one of the some of the stuff they're asking for is absolutely insane. Yeah, so I read through the brief that was posted by the uh, original author. So because the email went to his personal email as well as the public email of this open source project, he felt that he was justified in posting the, the PDF. So I read through it and it was some of it, it it could be argued that is you know kind of standard legal procedure but but essentially they were asking for things like we want to to get a listing of all the domains that you own or might be associated with you or anyone with the project with the idea that apparently they believe they have the right to scour through the domains that you own just because you may have violated their terms of service now, from my reading of the paper, and of course, I'm not a lawyer, I'm just some guy who works in tech, a couple of the things that they were accused of violating was they had the word Insta in their name, and apparently that's enough to get you kicked off of Facebook. <sighs> you know, they, they were to cease and desist using Facebook. And one of the things that I thought was an odd thing was they were responsible for within 48 hours, confirming with Facebook that they could no longer access any of their things. And I thought that just struck me as a little weird. I suppose from the legal, from the lawyer's perspective, if they're going to send a cease and desist letter, ask for everything in the kitchen sink, expect to fight back. If you get lucky, you get lucky. But what's the harm in asking for all this stuff, right? Yeah, and there was all, it was also kind of tone deaf because they asked for a an explicit declaration of all of the methods used as well as the source code and libraries used in your application like it, it's up on github <laughs> Here, here's the link uh you know so some of it was definitely boilerplate but but uh reading through it i i was kind of affronted by it because i'm like okay i have violated terms of service which by the way is not anything related to law like the terms of service of of an application doesn't mean that you violated some federal law that you should then have your privacy invaded and because they you know had insta in their name all of a sudden he has to go through and he has to provide a list of all of the face facebook and instagram accounts that he owns or is associated with him and a whole bunch of other things that i just thought were completely ridiculous on on what is essentially a copyright infringement 
It is. And, you know, what I take away from that, it doesn't necessarily surprise. I mean, I'm not shocked that Facebook is uh, is not hip to open source software. But what I what I, my takeaway from that is this guy, they, from what I understand, this project has spent the better part of a year putting this together. And so a year's worth of work went down the drain because the service that it was designed to interface to isn't really on board with them doing it, right? It's one of the things I give Moxie Marlin Spike a little bit of a hard time for is people want to make third-party signal clients and he gets real upset. And I get it. There's a security aspect to it. I get it. But at the same time, consenting adult, can I make my own decision on, on what I trust and what I don't trust? So to tie that back to the Matrix story here, one of the things I appreciate about the uh, about Matrix in general is even if Element or Matrix wasn't trying to develop a, a better Matrix client and polish all of the stuff in Element. We still have native GTK clients. We still have native Qt clients. We still have native forks of Element that uh, that are slimmed down and, and designed for specific users. They don't try to stop any of it. In fact, they actively promote it. And so somebody comes out and says, hey, I'm going to make Ditto Chat. As, and essentially, I think she did it just kind of a side project. And they go out and promote it and say, absolutely, we'll add it to our site. We'll give you some link back. We'll give you some attention and say, hey, here's the department of interesting projects. And here's some of the stuff that the community is working on. It seems to me that the larger message here is if the tools that are being written with open source in mind, when they're done properly and with other open source people in the community, they tend to be very successful and they tend to last for a while. It seems like as Facebook does this stuff, they shoot themselves in the foot. Eventually, all of those people, if you read that Reddit thread where this article was posted, a lot of those people are saying, we're going to move on to some sort of a Fediverse thing. And that's not there today with social media, but it could be at some point. And the day that that switches, there's probably no going back. So I think I'm two, of two minds on this because especially – so you bring up the signal thing, and I think it's a similar thing with Matrix. The potential problem that you have there is regardless of how good the back end is, if the front end is leaky, mm. you have a problem. Yep. And these services – so. I mean, this doesn't apply to Facebook because nobody believes Facebook's secure. Right. Like, we're, yeah. we're not going to Facebook for our data storage. Yeah. Um, but with Signal and Matrix, you know, the sale point is you self-host them or you trust the, the code to have been audited so that it's a secure messaging platform. And if you get a fork that is leaky, mm-hmm. then people are going to blame the back-end service instead of the client mm. because people don't understand that. That right? guy was compromised on Matrix. Well, he, I mean, he was, but he was using a third-party hack to the client that some guy wrote in Python in 10 minutes. Yeah, exactly. Right. And so I can understand that side. Uh, I don't think that applies at all to the Seaston's assist from Facebook. Mm-hmm. Um, they seem to be particularly egregious that the app allowed people to view Instagram anonymously. Right. And, and that was a problem. Gee, I wonder why. Yeah. Yep. Um, I just think it's it's an interesting dynamic overall because what I have found interacting with, let's say, normies more and more is that they rely on recommendations from someone who probably didn't know what they were looking at to begin with. They mm-hmm. just went with like, you know, I'm going to pick on fluffy chat just because, yep. uh, you know, I, there's nothing wrong with it that I know of, but maybe I just like the cat icon and it worked for me. And sure. so then I, I tell my wife and she tells her friends and it spreads like that. And now all of a sudden matrix is less secure because fluffy chat went out and was the popular one. Yeah. 
Yeah, and, they, and to a certain degree, they lose control of their own brand. I, I can see where you're coming from there. Omalytics has office hours. Uh, straight from the post. Hello, community. Please join us for an open office hours every Monday at 4 p.m. Uh, UDC, 12 p.m. EDT, 9 a.m. on the Omalytics community chat beginning Monday, August 2nd, 2021. Our community has been growing and questions keep rolling in every day. We'll have core team members, members of the cloud and container team, packaging and release engineering, community teams, as well as Alma Linux Foundation board members available to answer your questions live and in real time. You can email officehours at almalinux.org if there's anything in specific that you'd like to discuss, and we'll bring it up during your session. Join us for a chance to have your questions answered and issues raised, as well as hang out with fellow community members. FYI, we're still available almost any day at the Alma Linux community chat, and that won't change. The motivation for this is a public forum during certain times where anyone can have their questions answered and have team members available. You can also continue to ask questions via the forums, Twitter, or Reddit. So right now we're at this weird precipice where people are making the decision. Either they're going to stick with Red Hat proper, they're going to go with one of the Red Hat free editions, they're going to go with to stream, or they're going to pick with from one of the many recompiles of Red Hat. The difference, I, I'm going to set aside all of the Red Hat proper stuff because there's an obvious advantage to using the thing made by the company and supported by the company. So we'll talk just for a second about the recompile stuff. Really where the value is, is in the infrastructure and the community around each one of those. And a huge props to Alma Linux for doing something like this, for setting aside dedicated time to be around the community and allow themselves to be asked questions, respond to feedback, take advice, all of those things. If you were looking for a community enterprise operating system and this is what you get, hey, we can show up to this community chat, which happens all the time, but then there's a specific time where I know if I'm having a problem, I can go ask, or if I have a suggestion, I can go find out, I can stay plugged in and connected. That's a huge advantage. So I I thought this was kind of interesting. I like this a lot. One of the things that I had noticed was I tried to get involved with the Rocky Linux project um, early on. Mm-hmm. And this is relevant because what I found was the signal-to-noise ratio was really, really high. It mm. was really hard to get a hold of anyone to talk about anything concrete. You know, um, I know that they were bombarded with a lot of people, but as you might imagine, I do have some level of expertise when it comes to this. And so right. I thought it was something that I could um, work with. I haven't really been able to get a hold of of the people from Rocky Linux. And again, I I assume it's just because they're getting bombarded by that. The people at Alma Linux I have had chats with. I know they're involved in the the community. Mm -hmm. And they make positive steps like this. And and from where I stand, I think that is uh, huge because community building for me is, is one of the main reasons that I came to open source, you know, geez, almost 25 years ago now, Mm -hmm. you know. Yeah, very much so. I, I'm I'm really happy, and it, it seems like Alma Linux, as I've kind of watched all of all these people kind of do their thing, they seem to be one of the best stewards out in the community. So huge thanks to I think it's Cloud Linux as their parent company, and Alma Linux for the the recompilation of of Red Hat and uh, and for what they're doing to to stay uh, to stay in the loop and keep you in the loop. So after three years of beta, Canine Mail is getting an update. Tons of new features here. A redesign for the user interface. A changed background sync. Canine Mail now requires Android 5.0 and newer. They've added support for AutoCrypt as well as encrypted subjects. They're, uh, they don't always use the default signature when setting up an account, so you can customize that. They've removed the sh- keyboard shortcuts with anybody with a physical device like my, my poor little BlackBerry. 
uh, won't be able to take advantage of that. They've removed the broken option to store the message database to an external storage and removed the remote control interface to third-party apps so they can't change some settings in Canine Mail. Um, 5.8 update isn't live in the Play Store just yet. The version has been bumped to 5.6 in the change log, um, but there is a new version of Canine Mail out. So this is one of the most popular third-party mail apps out there. I'd be the first to say that I've switched from Canine Mail over to Blue Mail, and I'm very happy with it. But uh, Canine Mail, again, very popular in, in the community as a third-party mail client. If you're not looking for Gmail or you want something different, Canine Mail is not a bad way to go. Canine Mail happens to be fairly popular, actually, at Red Hat. I was on it as well. I also moved to Blue Mail when I was still hosting my own email. Okay. Um, I guess the beginning of last year, I moved hosting my email to Proton Mail for various reasons. Been happy there, so I used their client. But um, yeah, it's nice to see. This is when I saw this story. I thought about the uh, kind of the the spoof of Mir is not dead. I saw this and I was like, <laughs> Canine Mail is not dead. Who knew? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So check out Canine Mail. It's available in the Play Store. So, Steve, with the last couple minutes as we round out, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about uh, about your move. So, you're moving uh, uh, south of me, and so as we as you kind of have done this, one of the things that's been a frequent topic of conversation over the past few weeks is the house and how you're going to set it up and and what that's going to look like. And so, if you you have a unique perspective because you know what technology is out there and you've had an opportunity to play with that because you've been automating your home and dealing with that kind of stuff and obviously managing services and servers and technology for other people as as part of your career. So what does that look like as you think a fresh start, a clean slate? What kind of things are you excited for and where are you going to start? So the first thing that I said was, hey, Noah, you're going to be close. You want to come and help run some <laughs> Ethernet cable? Absolutely. Um, you know, because why wouldn't you love to spend a day running fishing wire through the walls? Um, but I, so a couple of things that I, aside from that, that I'm, I'm particularly interested in is I have some small skill with um, my dad worked with the electricians and, and, you know, he's done that kind of amateur stuff and, and we've always done that stuff at home. Mm -hmm. So being able to go ahead and put power outlets where they're needed, you know, it's not exactly computer related, except it is. Yeah. Because, you know, you can make sure that you're on different uh, breakers if you need to be mm -hmm. or make sure that you're getting the, you know, on the proper amperage and all the rest of that sort of stuff. So I'm looking forward to that. But I guess... Part of what was key for the discussions that Noah was talking about is where do I start to centralize things? Because I'm coming from an apartment where it's pretty easy. I had the underside of my desk, and mm -hmm. that's the only place that I had. And now I have some options. Do I centralize equipment and servers together? Do I, you know, where is the best vantage point in terms of putting up access points? Mm -hmm. if, if you're going to go Wi-Fi, all of those sorts of things are really at the top of the list for um, setting up the rooms to give me the flexibility in the future to put things where I want. Like if I want a wall mount with a um, computer attached to it, or maybe I want to set up a, uh, I don't know, like an IP camera or anything like that, mm -hmm. being able to have the drops in place, just putting them places where I think something might be in the future just to set up the ability later on to, to lay out the house. So a couple of options you're going to have, right? Um, 
if you have a basement, which in your case you do, um, if you have a basement, one of the easiest things to do is if it's not finished, then your your work's cut out for you. So you go find the ceilings, you go find around the perimeter of the house and drill up through the floorboards and poke out into the wall space. Go upstairs, use your fancy measuring skills and cut a hole in the wall and fish the wire back out and Bob's your uncle. When your house is finished, which I think the one that you're moving into is, it gets a little bit more challenging, but there are still some options available to you. Um, one of the things you can do is drop down from the attic. Rare, very rarely, if ever, are attics finished. And even if the attic, even if they have finished the upper portion, they will usually have like a little bit of a crawl space so that you can get in there and deal with the insulation and all of that. Um, that can be a really uh, easy place to then drop some wires back down. Uh, as far as getting up into attics, again, you talked about a centralized location. Obviously, you want to keep it away from heat. You want to keep it away from moisture if you can. Um, I move, I set up our network operations center in our house, and then my wife uh, accidentally stored her washer and dryer in my network operations center because she said something about that's where the dryer vent was. I don't know why they put a dryer vent in, in a knock, but but uh, but if if you sometimes you have to make compromises, right? And so you've got to share some space. Um, there are a couple of things you could do. So you could start with a wall swing rack, which is a nice, easy way that you can get up off of everything above the washer, above the dryer, in the corner, those kinds of things. Um, or in an electrical room, you can, uh, again, put a wall swing rack. Middle Atlantic makes a really nice one. The swing racks are kind of nice because it allows you to get to the back of the equipment when you're punching new wires in, so you can kind of add drops as you go along, and then you can close it up and it looks nicer uh, You know, throughout the rest of the, the day and the week. And again, it kind of gets more of that spousal approval factor because you don't have a 42U rack sitting inside inside somewhere in the house. Um, but when you're looking at central, when you're looking at a, a central place to put wire, basically what you're looking for is where is the easiest place to get wires uh, to the rest of the house. And one of the things that we, we do frequently for customers is we'll use something called Smurf Tube, which is essentially uh, flexible conduit, and we'll run Smurf Tube one time. Uh, sometimes you got to cut out the sheetrock to do this, but you'll run Smurf Tube from wherever you want that point to be up into your attic. And the nice thing about doing that, if you did four runs of one-inch uh, Smurf tube, one-inch in diameter Smurf tube, you've basically future-proofed your house because you could probably fit 20, 30 runs in each one of those uh, each one of those pieces of Smurf tube. And then once you're in the attic, it becomes – so then you can sheetrock back over it and patch that the holes that you've made. And when you want to add a run somewhere, fish the wire up through the Smurf tube into the attic, go to wherever the area of your house that you want to drop back down, and you can make your drop there. And in my house, when we bought an older house and we remodeled it, we gutted it and started from the top down. And I put two drops of Cat 6 in every wall. Why? I don't know why. But because if I'm going to have a wire somewhere, I want to have Cat 6. And if I had to choose where I was going to have Cat 6, it would be two runs to every wall. What um, what are you thinking about from the standpoint of TVs and media? I know you've played with a couple of different devices. There one that stands out to you that says, "Hey, I'm going to have every TV is going to have this." Is it going to be standardized, or is it going to be different per per room and per use case? So it's definitely not going to be standardized because um, I've tried the Nvidia Shield. I like it, but I find it lacking in mm. in some very specific ways. So. 
uh, I've also started to play around with an Apple TV, um, which I never thought that I'd end up saying in my life. Okay. Uh, <laughs> but it ended up being $20 cheaper than the NVIDIA Shield. And if you don't know, the Shield has recently started to advertise oh. to you. And some of the advertising was not appropriate for my little kids, mm. right? We started getting questions about things we're not ready to talk with my four- and five-year-olds about. You sure. Know? Um, and so we started playing around with that, but it also has its own types of limitations. And so we're probably going to have, we'll have an NVIDIA Shield. Probably we'll go with Nux, to be honest with you, okay. in, in some places because um, we have needed a, an actual web browser from mm-hmm. time to time. and. It, that becomes more difficult on, on some of the other devices, yep. not, not least of which uh, the Apple TV doesn't support Kodi. And uh, that, for me, has been, even though I have had Plex for years, mm-hmm. years and years, um, and you know we still use it, Kodi is, is almost a, a must-have for me. Oh, totally. Yeah, it's it's the bomb when it comes to native feedback. Let me ask you this, because this is something I'm currently in the process of trying to solve in my house. What do you think for charging? Universal device charging. It seems like we're only getting more mobile devices and computers and things. We can kind of safely assume that the vast majority of them are going to standardize on Type C. So, what does that look like in thirty seconds or less? Yeah, I think that's really difficult. Um, I probably would start replacing some of my my wall sockets with things that have USB ports attached to them. Um, and I also like you can get multiple USB ports that you can actually put into the wall. And I might do something like that because I think the, um, there are still things out there that use the lightning cable and, you know, some other types of uh, USB cables that aren't C. Steve, thanks for joining me. We're going to do this more often with you just a couple hours away. The show continues next week, 6 p.m. Central, asknoahshow.com. Have a good week. <laughs>